Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. Hey everyone, and welcome this week's guest, Carmel Murphy. Carmel, how are you? I'm awesome, thank you, Ian. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Now, there's a few different moments for us to unpack here, but you said the moment that changed everything in your life was your sister's diagnosis. So can you tell us a bit about that and the impact that just that moment had on your world? Yeah, it was about, um, gosh, seven and a half years ago now. Um, At the time, I was a state, uh, no, a regional manager for a restaurant chain. So I travel quite a lot and I live in Perth and as my sister lived in Perth too. And I was in South Australia at this stage. So she had been a bit unwell and she actually had had um, an operation for something completely unrelated. It was more of a heart thing. Um, But she wasn't feeling 100%. So I knew she had gone for some tests. But I was in Adelaide when um, she rang me and um, told me the outcome of the tests, which were that she had, uh, we knew it was probably cancer, but we, you know, kind of, we'll deal with it, we'll be okay. That it was um, stage four lung cancer. And um, her, she had been for her, I think, is it a PET scan or a, I don't know which scan it was, um, that lights up when, you know, to tell you where the cancers are. And her statement was, I lit up like a Christmas tree. Oh, wow. And she was told basically that she had um, 12 to 18 months to live. And um, I remember in that moment to this day, I couldn't tell you where I was in Adelaide, but I remember I was in the street when I took the call. And I remember just something landing in me and saying, I will not be in another state when somebody rings me to tell me she's dead. It just Mm -hmm. literally hit me like a ton of bricks. And I still, like, I get the feeling of it when I remember it even now. Yeah, I felt, uh, I felt it was like a, at my end, it was like a wave of almost knocked me off my feet, sort of wobble. And then, and then, like goosebumps of confirmation of how important that moment was for you. Absolutely. And it was exactly like that. It was like somebody, even now I get goosebumps, it was like somebody had pulled a rug out like right from under me. My sister, five years older than me, so had been with me all my life. And um, we had become even closer since we had been living in Perth because she lived five minutes down the road and, you know, we were just 
bosom buddies, I suppose, like so very, very close and very supportive of each other because, you know, you're family. So, yeah. 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 And uh, I imagine that you as a younger sibling also looking up to her and, and she would have been, particularly uh, in those younger years, a real guiding light for you too. Yeah, it's interesting. I have four older sisters. I'm the baby of five. And um, Bernie, who passed, so next to me are twins. So Bernie was one of the twins. And then I have two older siblings as well. But of all of them, um, all of our life, Bernie just seemed to be the person that was very charismatic. People were always drawn to. She was like the icon in the family. No matter if you didn't like the rest of us, everyone always liked Bernie. Um, and P Bernie had, you know, different things in her life. It was sometimes you find these people that get thrown hardship and you go, oh, my God, how did they come back from that? And Bernie always came back from that. Um, so she was the person that, you know, was pregnant at a young age and, you know, had just some horrible stuff. And she has had cancer um, 30 years before. She actually wow. had Hodgkin's disease 30 years before and was fine. The operation she had just before this diagnosis was because the valve in her heart had been damaged from the radiation she had 30 years ago. Right. But she, you know, and, and she had lost a baby. So, like, she was just able to overcome so much. She got so much more hardship than the rest of us did. Mm. Um, but, yeah, definitely she. And then I moved to Australia. I was the first one to leave Ireland. I moved to Australia. And um, the other twin actually came to Melbourne. But after 10 years, I moved to Perth and Bernie had come out to Perth then. And then I suppose 15 years of us together down the road from each other here in Perth. Mm. Yeah. Does yeah. it frustrate you that uh, she, she was over, able to overcome so much but and she wasn't able to, um, yeah? Um, probably yes at the time so you know part of all of these things that happen to us is the journey we go through then you know and, and this side of it i'm able to look back um and realize yeah it would have frustrated me it's like oh for god's sake how much more does she need to have yeah but knowing what i know now because i've done a lot of deep diving and learning because of that too mm. um I think some of those things she didn't completely overcome. They actually went inward, mm. which, you know, and if I look at it, I'd studied psychosomatics and psychosomatic therapy and that now, for example, lung is where we hold all our grief, unresolved yes. grief. Mm. So uh, Bernie had had, um, she has three sons and um, she, always wanted a girl as well but she had, was pregnant at one stage with little Katie and just before just before she was due to give birth a couple of days before um, they went into hospital because she hadn't felt the baby moving that much and they put the, the scan on her belly to monitor and they basically almost watched her baby die so the baby was in distress and this was way back in Ireland. So she was sent home for three or four days until she went into labor herself. Now, I was in Australia at the time. And mm. my my middle daughter is, um, Bernie was her godmother. So my daughter was about 
10 or 11 months old. And so uh, way back then when you came to Australia, kind of that was it for life. You weren't flying back over for anything. So Bernie was going through all that and, and at home and, you know, didn't want to touch her tummy or anything like that. And this is purely my belief. But in hindsight now, I don't think she ever got over that. Mm. And I think that um, unresolved grief over the years that stayed there for Katie um, just built up and built up. And re- the bizarre thing, their wedding anniversary, and that's when Katie was born on the same day. It was all intermingled. Yeah. Mm. Oh, goosebumps through that. There's so much yeah. to unpack there, Carmel. And, and what I love is that, yeah, you've been deep diving. That is clear. And from the previous conversations we've had as well, I know you've shared a fair bit of that. Um, it's interesting because my, my dad passed away from problems with his lung, lungs, amongst other things as well, uh, some leukemia. And he used to cough like because of, you know, the what he was holding. Interestingly, now I do that same thing when I'm cleansing for other people as well. So um, I find that whole thing and I wonder, one, if that's what dad was doing as well, just not not with an understanding of it. And, and I was kind of drawn to this when you were talking about your sister, Bernie. If she's that charismatic person and she's able to get overcome great like big stuff that it's almost like she was actually doing a lot for everyone else. Mm. Yeah, and that's interesting because I once in our family, she was nicknamed as Big Mama in terms of like if you and I were to sit there and go, oh, you know, I might wallpaper or I might paint, she'd be the one to say, right, here's the wallpaper, here's the paint, let's do it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. And um, she reckoned in her latter years, like before she was even ill, she went, nah, I've had enough of that. I'm handing the baton to Carmel. So I became the, come on, guys, let's look at things differently. Let's do it a different way. So I got the big mama baton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with the uh, with the emphasis on mama, right? Not the big bit. I, well, you know. <laughs> uh, um, just back to that moment. Where, so you had that moment where you you felt that message come through of needing to be closer to her. So that and like, was it just overwhelm at the moment? Or was it then that moment of, of sort of uh, guidance that you got through gave you enough clarity to go, okay, well, let's we just got to do what we need to do now? Or do you remember much of those sort of early times after hearing the news? I'd love to say, yes, I had this real clarity. At the time, I didn't even know who to be. I didn't, like, I I was literally like that. I, I didn't know who to be. I didn't know what to do. Um, I had a job. Um, I went to, I went numb at first, if I'm honest. Mm. And so many thoughts go through your head. What if, and what if, and what if that, and what if this, and how can I do that? Um, so I did go to my bosses eventually, and I kind of said, look, I'm happy to work, but I don't want to travel anymore. Um, this is the situation. Um, unfortunately, they weren't hyper accommodating to that. Um, so I made the decision shortly after that, and I just left. Um, they were going to keep me on a contract basis, 
um, and I did one stint for them. I ended up in Sydney just for this short stint and uh, got a phone call from Ireland that my mother was on her deathbed. So I had to go from Sydney back to Perth to get my passport to go to Ireland on a mercy mission um, mm. because my mum was, by all reports at that stage, um, she was actually in the ward in the hospital where they say patients don't come back out of. All right. Um, but my mother did. Wow. You know, and my my way of dealing with a lot of stuff, Ian, is <laughs> inappropriate humour. Um, because quite often, and with my sister in particular, she didn't want people feeling sorry for her. She didn't want people, you know, pussyfooting around her. So mm. I had some bizarre, um, really inappropriate to other people's sense of humor. But with my mom, for example, um, like my mom's lying in this ward. She's out of the, you're going to die ward, but still, uh, they're not sure. And she's lying there and my poor mom's going, oh, Carmen, why won't God take me? And I'm going, because you're talking to the wrong fella. <laughs> uh, and, you know, as, as bizarre as it sounds, but that was the relationship, like, I would have with my mother. I'd be going, oh, yeah. God's sake, don't be praying to God. You need to be talking to the other fella to go. Um, <laughs> but it, it always lightened it a little bit, but enough, because you're in that bubble of intensity and you know mm. we're sitting there and we call it in Ireland maudlin you're sitting there and just waiting for a person to die it's like no let's bring you know a bit of something to this even my mother in that moment as ill as she was she gave me a dirty look and it was kind of like well there you go Kathleen you think there's the dirty look again <laughs> um, and you know it's look when my sister was so ill because she had had the heart operation she ended up having a stroke as well and um, was paralyzed down one side. And her mantra had been one foot in front of the other. So my inappropriate humor then was, and she found it hilarious, but other people were a bit, mm. my, my thing was, well, you can't even put one foot in front of the other now because one of them's not bloody working. <laughs> so I know it sounds ridiculous and most people wouldn't even admit that but it made her laugh, so I didn't care. I, I actually quite enjoy the same sort of humour. It's mm. like if you can't laugh about these things, then yeah, what, what are you doing? And I can yeah. just distinct memories of in the waiting room after, um, after Dad had passed, sitting around with family members, and, of course, it was like moments of tears, but then there was also interjections of humor and probably the same sort of inappropriate jokes and yeah. probably yeah you've got to know your audience and and uh if it's the right thing for the right people then yeah, who, who is anyone else to judge how you cope with these difficult situations and i really thank you for highlighting that because one of the things that people yeah. get too caught up in through grieving process and even the aftermath is has to be a certain way no, yeah. there's there is no set way, and and to me, humour is such a key element of helping us to remember and helping us to to move through things. Um, I'm I'm kind of drawn to the the Irish people I know, and and in my travels there, how important that was. It's like a way of life, right? Yeah. And you think of uh, history of overcoming hardships and and using humour. I don't know if that re resonates with you. 
Uh, look, absolutely. And the thing about it is, like I've just told you about that with my mother, for example, it creates memories because it is sometimes a, a full stop or a show stop or whatever. Yeah. And like from my Bernie's diagnosis before we had to rush for my mother, in the interim of that, we had all gone to Ireland. We all traveled to Ireland to tell my parents face to face that Bernie was dying. So we had gone and come back and then my mother was ill, gone and came back. Mm. And then Bernie passed and then my dad passed six weeks later of a broken heart. And Yeah, wow. It was so huge. that is huge. So how yeah. are you managing yourself through all of that? It sounds like an absolute roller coaster. It was. I think I was in Ireland six times in two years. Um I'm very, very grateful for the learning and the journey and everything I've been on prior because I, way back 10, 11 years ago, began, you know, learning to be a coach and NLP and behavioral profile, you know, all the layers that we do. Yeah. And I firmly believe now that even though at the time I didn't even make a business out of it, I was always kind of scrambling to make it. Um, it gave me on a personal side some of the tools to be able to deal with some of that. Now, I don't think you can ever deal with it perfectly. I don't think there's a, even though there's many books written, I don't think there's a book written for every single person. Yeah. So I think that gave me a lot of the tools and I, I'm a bit of a straight talker. So um, I had touched into my emotion a little bit more. And Bernie was amazing in terms of she had palliative care. She stayed at home. She was only in hospital when she needed to be. So, like, we'd have discussions about it. I had a sister had come from Ireland, my other sister from Melbourne, and my daughter had come from Queensland, and we were all sitting around this hospital bed in their house. And I'll always remember this because Donald Trump was on the TV again. Why do I remember this? I don't know. <laughs> um, but suddenly Bernie just said, I want to go around the room and I want you all to tell me how you're going to be when I'm gone. Wow. Now, we were like, my daughter was absolutely beside herself because my ex-husband had died less than a year before that. And um, so she was still grieving her dad. So my sister literally went, you and you and you. And we all spoke, and you know, down to her own sons, down to her husband. And then um, she said, now, I want to tell you how I'm going to be. And she did. And she shared that with us. And then we were all like, you know, mouths open, what do you do? And Bernie said, get me out of the bed and let's order pizza. <laughs> oh, right <laughs> up. And then the pizza came and the pizza were all laid on the bed while she sat in her big armchair and we all ate pizza like it was another normal day in the world. Wow. Bizarre. Bizarre. bizarre very but, intense. But somewhat comforting, I imagine, as well. Yeah. One of the things I did after um, Bernie passed, as I said, um, six weeks later, my dad passed. Um, after that, I did become very closed is the best way as a survival mechanism. Mm. Um, I realize now I had I, I was holding on to my emotions so much because I was afraid if I let them go, 
that I would never be able to come back. It just wouldn't. Mm. And I was very fortunate. A friend of mine was coming to Perth at the time and she was doing the psychosomatic course that um, I spoke about. And even myself and my partner were having a bit of stuff going on as well. So it was all. Um, but we were studying the psychosomatic. So it's in a room with lots of other people. Part of it was sharing every morning, you know, really open. And in my internal dialogue, I'm going, eh, no way. Don't even ask me. I remember the facilitator said, it's your turn. And I'm going, you somebody else. Not me, not me, not me, not me. Yeah. And my partner stood up and he told everything about what was going on with us. And my internal dialogue was, oh, shut your mouth, stop doing that. <laughs> um, but then it came to a point that we worked on each other, you know, different people. And because it was a group of us, so there'd be five or six facilitators working on one person. Yeah. And I remember being on like a massage bed and, you know, the little hole where your face goes. I realize now my internal dialogue was if I just don't let them know that they're hurting me or they've hit a sensitive point, they'll go past it. <laughs> so, you know, these people were doing this. So I was holding on. I wasn't letting any of this go. Um, I have a, a necklace here. And I have this ring here was my dad's. The necklace was my sister's. And one of the facilitators who had shared a lot of stuff with me and I, her, got them because I had taken them off for this kind of treatment and put them on the floor underneath where my face was looking. Wow. Well, the tsunami broke. That was the best (laughs) thing that ever because I was literally holding on to everything so strongly. But I didn't realize that's what I was doing. Um, as coaches we go and do this training and we learn how to to shift behaviours in people and we go thinking it's going to be for other people's benefit it's always the same isn't it it always brings about some kind of monumental shift that we couldn't even comprehend and that must have been uh, confronting but almost euphoric to have have all that in a safe place with other people who are on a similar journey? I didn't feel safe, not because I wasn't in a safe place with other people. I think, again, in hindsight, 2020 vision, Mm. I just didn't feel safe in myself. Mm. Um, Because I remember um, the moment my sister passed, so in her last day, like we were all in and out of the house in her last days for the last 17 or 18 hours, we had like a vigil, I guess. So somebody was always in the room with her um, and another might be asleep on the sofa, whatever. If she breathed a certain way, oh, come in, come in, she's going. And my sister, her sister-in-law was there from Scotland, who is a nurse and has experience with palliative care. And she was friggin' amazing. But I remember for me, the actual moment she passed, that it was her last breath. And everybody then, you know, went into tears, whatever, but they all went to tell people. And I just remember sitting beside her in the bed, holding her hand and going, it was like this really big slap in the face. And I really jumped into my three or four year old self. And my thought process was, why are they all leaving her now? Because they had walked out of the room. 
But all of a sudden, this thing came up in me and I just kept going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If I said I'm sorry enough that she'd come back, I was oh. like really childlike. I was holding her arm going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I could feel her getting colder as I was holding her arm. And to this day, that still brings tears to my eyes because mm. I literally had this, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like, as if I said, I'm sorry enough and begged and pleaded that she'd come mm. back. And it was, mm. yeah, yeah. <sighs> yeah. Have you, you said you've done deep diving. Have you unpacked what the sorry might've been about? Uh, yeah, because as a younger sister, I was always stirring them up. I was always getting them in trouble. I was always. <laughs> and they used to say to me, oh, my God, you were such a bitch when you were younger. You were so spoiled, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I, I used to, as an adult, say, but I'm a grand young one now. Um, <laughs> but there was a part of me that was. I don't actually know what I was sorry for, but I felt if I said sorry enough in that couple of seconds that mm. everything would be okay. I didn't care about taking blame or, you know, anything. Just just, just take everything and just give her back to me. Mm. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. So you went to bargaining early on. Mm. Uh, did you sit in guilt at any point? I made a decision early on, hmm. very early on. And, you know, we all have different beliefs about this, that, and the other. I made a very conscious decision early on that I would have no regrets and that I would accept whatever Bernie's road was, whether it was treatment road or this or that or the other. Um, and I made that very consciously because we all, as I said, I'd have, I'm a little bit out there, outside the box with different beliefs and treatments and this, that, and the other. And none are right or wrong. Everything's right for the person it is. So I don't think I had any guilt at all because I felt um, I had made that decision. So I went with it. If you're yeah. on this show, you're going to be a bit out there. So uh, <laughs> that, that's a given. <laughs> uh, um but I'm, I'm really drawn to that that moment you described with the pizza. Like she gave yeah. you permission to go forward like that. Now, maybe the others didn't receive it in the same way, mm. but uh, like to me that just again shows the bond. Like we have bonds with different people and it doesn't mean we love different people any more or less, but there are certain people, whether it's siblings or relatives or friends, where there's just a, a deeper connection. Yeah. It's some of those weird and wonderful beliefs. It's like we've, we've been together in past lives and mm. there's some sort of connection that we, we just can't explain. And yeah. what, what, a, what a blessing to receive from your sister to just war for everything like yeah. yeah now you said you've been on a deep dive because of this experience yeah did you have to go through some darker days before you were before there was a catalyst to actually start doing some of the deep diving yeah as i said i i didn't know who to be in terms of 
our little family bubble while grandparents have passed. Other than that, like my sisters have had maybe miscarriages and Bernie obviously had a stillborn. I think one of my other sisters did too. I was like this little freaking, I only had to walk past my ex-husband when I got pregnant and then I had a baby. Like there was no, I had lived a, a quite a privileged life, but mm. as a whole, our little family bubble hadn't been through big traumatic experiences that my knowledge anyway so this was huge for us all and for the icon of the family if you like to be in this situation that that really tore us apart so the deep dive i did the eulogy for my sister i did the eulogy for my dad and i did the eulogy for my mom because I ended up just for somehow being the the only one that could because mm. I had this power of disassociation. Now, I didn't always look at it as a power. I've worked hospitality since Jesus was a child. Um, and I have realized now, again, in hindsight, because you, I was always told in hospitality, you go in, you leave your troubles at the door, nobody wants to see you miserable, da-da-da-da. I turned it somewhere into a superpower that I could disassociate just enough, not as a coping mechanism, but just enough to get what needed to be done done and then associate back into the emotion as well. Um, Goosebumps. Yeah. And I do, I still use, so I was able to disassociate enough and go, what does uh, somebody need to know about my sister? And I could only tell it from a sister's point of view because my poor brother-in-law was beside himself. He said, I can't speak. My nephews, and they were trying to put stuff together and, you know, trying to put everything in together for the person that was doing the service. And in, in the end, they said, look, can you do it? And I did. And I brought in humour into every one of them. I brought humour into it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Love it. yeah. <laughs> And I forget the question. Sorry. Uh, me too, but the answer was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned there um, being that spokesperson and and the communicator. Um, now we're going to get more into the work that you do later in the interview. But yeah, interestingly, when you first mentioned the deep dive and and um, and what had gone inward for for Bernie. I felt this like it was like a fire in my throat, like when you swallow some chili oil and it burns the whole way down. And it's like, it's almost like that in itself it lit a fire for bringing even more of your communication genius. And I don't know if that resonates with you, but it's like, it's almost like the, the well, it's a, it's an element of purpose, right? Like go and share yeah. the message that, that Bernie now won't be able to. Yeah, and I think um, for me, like when I started coaching, this the communication queen, the name of the business, came up in a coaching session or something years ago. But with all of this sort of stuff that happened, then you realize why you had learned what you had learned, why mm. you had the tools that you had. And if you're open to it is, and that's why like with that disassociation, if you're open to it to see things as a gift rather than a, as a hindrance. Because sometimes I used to see that as a hindrance because I was the queen of the two-minute conversation because I could disassociate that. Oh, sorry, I have to go and pick up the glasses here. Um, 
But when I turned it into more of a superpower to use as I wish rather than to live there, that's what made a huge difference. So like the communication queen to me was just a thing. I never knew Mm -hmm. why, but it has much more meaning over time. Yeah, of course. Uh, Which, which again means you're in exactly where you need to be because you'll continue to, to unpack and unpeel more of it. Ah, yes. Every day. Absolutely. I'd love to hear if you could, how that, superpower has been to your benefit but also where has it been to your detriment interesting to my benefit i think it is number one being aware of it that it is a a way of being that you can choose or not Mm -hmm. so to my benefit has definitely been i'm able to sit myself outside that emotional whatever we're sitting in and go, okay. And that's how I could write the eulogies. I'm going like, okay, what these people that are going to come to this service that maybe know my sister as a worker, as a this, as a that, the other, what do they need to know that I can give them an essence of her life? And then, you know, kind of dissect it from there. And I did the same with my dad and my mom. We had, my dad's name was Seamus and Shay for short and we had shayisms so we had a lot of shayisms so i threw all them in so that's how it's been a, a superpower and even now there's things that go on right now there's some other stuff going on um overseas as well um and i seem to be able to stand outside it momentarily almost like you're inside yourself and go okay I, I see that that's happening and how you can get completely caught up in it. But what's the best we can do by now? What's the actual step we can do? What If we took the emotion out of it, what can we do that's going to be best for this person that's struggling or this person that's supporting this person that's struggling right now? Yeah. So that's how it works. That Detrimentally, I think I was unconscious of it being a power for years. Mm. to the extent that all I had on were the different masks, mm. you know. Um, so a lot of people, I've been told all my life, um, you're okay, but I wouldn't want to cross you. So I had this very, <laughs> um, especially as a manager in hospitality, I had a, like, I'm the manager. I don't I don't go out and get pissed with you guys or I don't go out and socialise with you guys. Mm. But the underneath truth of it was that, I then felt I didn't have as many friends because um, I would isolate myself. So I didn't feel I had anyone to talk to um, quite often because, you know, I had disassociated in front of these people to pretend to be whatever they expected me to be. But I didn't know how to bring the real me out with it so even to the extent i used to go back to ireland on holidays and you know i was the youngest i was a shitster i was the joker whatever and i used to go back and try and say no i'm not that i'm this i'm the other but as i evolved i realized going back to my parents and just honoring the parents they were and showing up as the person they presumed i was 
was yeah. actually okay and it was the biggest gift I could give them. So I would go home and I would stir shit and I would say stuff and I would do inappropriate stuff just for fun hmm. and um, create memories. It wasn't about me trying to change them or push my beliefs onto them. So, yeah, but it was detrimental years ago, definitely, because I felt like this, the proverbial duck underwater, you know, like everyone at sea, everything looked great, and I was underneath scrambling mm. um, and felt very isolated, alone, like I didn't know where I fitted in. Of course I didn't. I was the youngest of five girls. They'd all done bloody everything. I didn't know what the hell to do that was new. And um, again, in hindsight, I came from a background of um, sexual abuse, which I didn't know was abuse. <laughs> I don't know. And I definitely wasn't a victim. What are you talking about? Because it was quite pleasant in like I was obviously groomed very well. So it was never horrific. It was never horrible. And then there was a lot of guilt underneath when you finally found out that actually wasn't right. Mm. Um, and yet I was the first one in my family to ever talk about any of it. Mm. Mm. Oh, so it was, it was like, like across the, like all of your sisters, like when you, when you say. Uh, I'm not sure all, but definitely two or three of us. Yeah. Right. So how, so when you went on this deep dive, is that, is that when, when did you start sort of realizing the, the sort of magnitude of the impact that might have had on you? That one has been a rolling, evolving thing probably since my mid-20s, I would say. Um, mm. And I was always curious. I'm always curious as to how people think. Like I was the kid that literally took the arms and legs off a doll, not because I wanted to break the doll, because I wanted to see what was inside the doll and how it worked. Mm. Um, so it was always the same with people's minds. Like years and years ago, I was doing an online course in child psychology. Like I just always wanted to wonder, even somebody who was um, a rapist or a pedophile or something like that, how did they think and how did they get to where they got with what they thought? Mm. Um, so I've always kind of been really curious and um, for myself, I've always done little bits of something. I didn't know what I was doing many years ago. Hmm. So I think, yeah, definitely um, probably later 20s, early 30s, I really started to dive more and more into it. Um, I came to Australia, obviously, when um, my kids were young. And then being outside your little bubble environment, you do tend to stretch yourself and start looking for more and you start looking for kind of answers I don't know if I would have like now I'd go on to Google and say blah 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 and um, we didn't really you know do that then um but I've definitely always been looking for what happened I I realized again in my 20s late 20s so I had my first child when I was 19 and um not that I would never give her up, love her to bits, there's nothing about that. But it wasn't a planned pregnancy. I realized that I was much more promiscuous as a teenager because coming from a family of five girls and whatever, I didn't know how to communicate with men 
other than a certain way. Right. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. Was that uh, ability to say no or or even articulate your needs or like what sort of specifics of that, that uh, yeah. It was the, very much that was the only way I knew to get attention right. um, to communicate with a male um, even though when I think about it, if I wasn't communicating, I would exude almost sex appeal when I was a teenager because that was, in hindsight, what I knew. Or maybe mm. that was how I interpreted everything around me. But I would get approached a lot more than some, perhaps, because maybe it was it was like it was written on my forehead at one stage. Um, but... I think in more in my 20s when I started really understanding it and evolving or beginning that journey, there was a, a process of forgiveness of myself of, well, of course you were like that, you didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. And like the abuse, I say abuse, and yet, as I said, I didn't feel like that, but it didn't end its natural ending. The person died. So it ended suddenly with no repercussions, no natural ending. Nobody ever found out about it, nothing. It was just, it was like, what? I'm only a young girl. What? What? What's happened? I, I suppose at that time there was a grief process, but I didn't know about that. Hmm. Yeah. So I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't begin to understand what, what that would processing any of that at that age it did it did kind of make me think around whether the, there had been a almost natural disassociation even from that young age like it's a yeah, lot yeah in hindsight lot. probably yes yeah he said yeah. he said it was pleasant because the grooming had been so strong but there must have been some part particularly from an emotional perspective that you're just not ready for any of that no, I wouldn't have been because I, I, my earliest memory of it was about three. So, no, I wouldn't have been. So maybe it was kind of like, this is what I like in it too, when kids are playing shop, it's kind of like that. It's that pretend. Mm. Mm. And then you pretend that this is normal, everything's okay, but you don't know you're pretending till we come to the other side of it. And then suddenly it stops. You're like, what happened? What did I do? Did I do something wrong? Why did this person leave? I don't know how to process grief, but nobody knows that I'm grieving because nobody knew that was going on. Mm, yeah, wow. So given you have done a lot of deep diving, have you seen how that's negatively impacted future relationships? Oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. I didn't know because uh, there was always that living on the surface level is the best way I'd put it. Mm. And living for, you know, the excitement of the newness or the whatever. And then, but how to actually forge a deep, meaningful relationship? Absolutely no idea. No idea. It was all skewed in my brain. I didn't know how, how that would be. Um. And then I got married because, you know, 
that's what you do. If you're from Ireland, you're supposed to get married, you're supposed to have kids, or sometimes in the reverse. And then we moved to Australia, and I was married to my ex-husband. In hindsight, we probably should have never been together, really. Well, we loved each other at the time, but then we divorced years later. It wasn't that he was a horrible person or that I was a horrible person. We both had our whatevers. And, you know, we can... We can sit in a space of, and this is what I've seen happen with a lot of people, um, is, oh, he did this to me, she did that to me, blah, blah, blah. Well, you can sit there if you like, or you can decide to be somewhere else. And I just have always chosen that, okay, I need to put that to bed, and I do sit in the drama of it sometimes. I'm not perfect, I'm not trying to say I am. But then eventually I go, well, do I want to sit here and wallow in this, or do I just want to move on with my life? And moving on with my life was my choice. So we were um, divorced, gosh, I think about 10 years, when um, he actually got cancer and passed away himself. Mm, and he wow. was only 50 years old. Yeah. Um how deep do you want to go <laughs> uh, i'm just uh sorry processing no no this is good i'm just processing how that felt at, at my end because when when you were talking about those past relationships it felt like a tiredness like like I've been awake for three days sort of tiredness, like my eyes went heavy and and I, I'm just drawn to what you've said about the whole time is around the, just that ability to tune in and I wonder how much of those relationships you were just grabbing other bits from other people's stuff and until yeah. you went to the healing part, I wonder how much you were just carrying of other people's. Yeah. And that's uh, very insightful because uh, it's interesting you say tired because I had the disassociation of, you know, all this stuff going on in the back, but I would still show up for work and I would still be all right. And I would show up and I'd do 50 or 60 hours a week and I would do, you know what I mean? Because mm. I ended up a single mom. I had to keep food on my kids' um, table. Um, but somewhere in that was... Again, this is hindsight and things I've learned. Love my parents dearly. But, you know, we have memes that are handed down. So memes are to memories or genes are to genetics. And for my dad, for example, so getting back to Bernie sharing the pizza, my dad had not always got enough food. So he spent his life, and there's lots of little jokes within the family of this one eating that and the other. My dad took great pleasure in observing us eat and in feeding us and providing us with enough food. Yeah, so it ended right. up somehow being his, in hindsight again, dad's way of showing love was to make sure you weren't hungry. Yeah. So that's why it was quite significant with Bernie with the pizza. There was love there. But my dad, at least for me, and this is what I've made it mean, I can only ever speak for my own. My dad always had a very, very strong, strong sense of responsibility. So he had five daughters and my mom, obviously, my dad worked three or four jobs. He was never a big drinker. He was never a sportsman. He, you know, he would work his normal job during the week. He'd drive minibuses at the weekend. He'd work in a pub at nighttime, all this sort of stuff. So I think at some stage that I 
I now <laughs> say that I inherited my dad's sense of responsibility, that I was tired because I had everyone else's on my shoulders. I felt responsible to make sure they were okay, to make sure they felt happy, to make sure they weren't made to be left out. Mm. So but the learning of that is like, it's actually not my responsibility <laughs> for you to be happy. But at one stage it was. And um, my eldest daughter has been my biggest teacher in a lot of ways because she's been through some stuff in her own life. I had to look at who I was being when she wasn't happy because I actually, in hindsight again, and under great introspection, um, and this is a part that's quite uncomfortable in learning about yourself because you have to put a mirror off sometimes. <laughs> God, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I had to admit to myself that me trying to make sure she was okay was actually an element of control because who was I, be, who was I as a mother if she wasn't happy? Oh, this is good. Yeah. Now, that was a big slap in the face to me. I'm going, I'm not controlling. I'm just being nice. I'm looking after her. I'm trying to make sure you don't realize. But when I dug deep in it, I went, yeah, no. It was about me. Me trying to control the narrative in a way so that I could feel good as a mother. And the parents listening, if you can take anything on board from this chat, oh, it's that. Because that same thing, my eldest daughter teaching me exactly the same thing. Yeah. It's like, because my thing that uh, that I wanted to make sure is that, that they didn't feel like that they were alone and didn't have a safe place for emotion and all those sorts of things. And just the, the, the rather abrupt and blunt, Dad, what makes you think what I'm going through now has got anything to do with you? <laughs> oh, yeah. that's cold. But yeah, yeah. best thing I could have heard because it's like I'm not responsible for how they feel either. Yeah, I didn't even hear that though. I, I necessarily I didn't get that back. It was just how can I say? It, it was just I when I think about it now it was probably saying, "Oh my God, other people will think that I must be horrible. I'm not supporting my daughter." That it was more that kind of thing, and the self. I think the greatest gift or ability that we've given ourselves over the years, and I know you're there too, in is as uncomfortable as it is to actually look at ourselves in a really safe space as well. So I trust me. That's yes. that's the biggest thing I've worked on. No matter what, look, I've done things I regret. I've done. I'm sure I'll do more. I regret but I trust implicitly in me. And that is very powerful. So, you know, I might love this person or that person, but no matter what they bring to me, they're not going to make me a worse person, a better person, an anything person, because I trust completely in what's on the inside. One of the mm. greatest metaphors... I've seen people say, you know, this one's that, this, the other. And I go, hang on, if I cut you open right now, what am I going to find inside? I'm going to find blood, guts, hearts, lungs, whatever, bit of excess fat, maybe, cough, cough. Um, but I'm never going to find Ian in there. No. Never. 
So if that's so, what is this essence that is me? And this essence that is me is outside of that body. And that's how I think that we can stay connected. Like I still, I talk to my sister every day. Sometimes my mom and dad come in and slap me around the ear, you know, but, um, but I talk to her every day because it's that essence of the being. So when you trust your true being, regardless of this arm, leg, friggin' hair, whatever, mm-hmm. I don't think anyone can really damage that. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm drawn to, like, how Bernie carries herself through that time that you described like that's mm. it was almost like i'm going to do this and i'm going to give you all permission to do that too and yeah. not everyone's going to see that but the other thing that you touched on there was control and again yeah. if we look from whether it's being a parent a partner and in, in business life whatever we can only control what we've got going on and being able to let our children go and have that space with boundaries, of course, but particularly as they get older, like I've been exploring that now while they, they're in their late teens, of, I've unpacked what you said there a few times myself. It's like, I wonder how that will look because I'm just letting them go and have their space and some of their behaviour uh, I don't love. <laughs> Did I probably do the same or worse, 100%? Yeah. The greatest gift I think now, as I'm saying this out loud, is that my parents. Once I got to a certain age, was exactly that. It's like we'll, we'll be here, but you've got to, yeah. you've got to let go. And um, and as you described there, we've like okay, we can only control that that part of us, mm. that energy. It's it's mm. such a powerful exercise, right? And I think the trust for me, anyway, comes from the I trust. I don't mean ill to that. If you take it that way. Mm. I'm sorry that you feel like that, but I trust that that was not my intention. Yeah, I'm, and I'm not even yeah. sorry. It's just no, well, no, I'm not sorry. I'm just sorry you feel like that. Yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah, sorry. Cool. That's the yeah, difference. Yeah. Yes. And, and like, I, I probably have a bit of a benefit of being a little bit older than you, and also like my youngest is 32. Yeah, right. So, like, my kids are actually adults, and the eldest one has already given birth to two humans. Um, so, like, they're not even teenagers anymore. Am I proud of who they are? One million percent. Yeah. Even when they do shitty stuff that I that annoy me or whatever, I'm still proud of the fact that they're living human beings that are on a journey for themselves. Am I their soft place to fall? Absolutely. Yeah. But that's all I can be for them. Yeah, 100%. I love that. And uh, and I'm thought at the same time was instill as much of self-pride or their ability yeah. to, to have self-pride through that same process too, so yeah. important. Now, we've talked about, well, not specifically and, and not surprisingly given your story because we've disassociated from the communication, but all of this was around <laughs> communication, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and your ability to the, the, the one phrase that really sticks out that there is time for emotions and you can't go through the healing that you've been through without knowing the importance of that you described that moment on the on yeah. the uh, massage bed but being able to put things in place where you can disassociate from emotions to communicate 
that, that's so crucial. It's and again, all those places I talked about before in in your love life, your children, partnerships, business. Like, no, no, just come back to process, or let's just come back to the reality of the situation. The emotion can come up later, but this is I'm not having a go at you. I'm not, I'm not placing any responsibility on you for any of this. It's it's this is just how how it needs to be. Mm-hmm. So so talk to us a bit about the work that you do. Um, I'm curious whether that does come into it because it kind of makes sense from what you've said. Um, I have a couple of prongs to the work I do. So I work with people one-on-one, which is usually Mm. in business, but it's like, what's stopping your business being successful? And it's always ourselves. It's always, without exception. (laughs) Um, So I I do talk to that a lot. I teach people, you know, how to make promotional videos for their business and things like that. But to me, they're all the tools of the trade. Yeah. It's the actual psychology of the person and part of um, even teaching video. So we talk a lot about the scripts is the psychology of the person's buying brain. How do we connect with the people who need to resonate and help get help from you the most? Well, it's by storytelling. It's by telling us a story. And we all make decisions from our emotional brain. Whether we want to think that we do or we don't, we do. We make it from that primal brain. You know, do I need to run away from it? Do I need to? So when you tell an emotional story, in video in particular, because you have all the different senses happening and you can put some amazing music on it, it really talks to the person and it talks right in there in that emotional um, area. So I teach people how to reach out and do that. Now, have we got some of the processes under the back of it and email sequences and all that stuff? <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's like anything, you know, you have this and, and when you get really clear on who it is you help the most and how you can help them, well then let's make sure they can see you. And that's where marketing comes in. And that I I would say I tripped over marketing years ago because I couldn't make um with all this stuff I knew, I still couldn't make it a business because nobody knew who I was or how I could help them. Mm. So I get to teach amazing people to do that now. Yeah, so good. And that's the best thing for us to teach again from the things we're most challenged with to be able to help them find the shortcuts by all the mistakes yeah. and roadblocks we hit. That's so good. Yeah. And what, one of the things that always comes to mind, and I used to always do it. My dad used to do the same. It was nearly a competition if we all went out for dinner to see who could go to the toilet first and pay for the bill. Yeah. You know, while everyone else. And we'd always do it. And somebody, it was a mentor of mine that brought it up a long time ago, and it's so pivotal. It's like, what do you get out of doing that? It's like, oh, I get to feel great. I spoiled everyone. Yada, yada, yada. I said, oh, okay. So you take that opportunity away from the other person mm-hmm. to feel good every time you do that. And I went, oh, my God. Every I time. do. Yeah. And I thought we do that so much in one of the most precious things you can give somebody is your time. And to give them that few moments like we have to realize that that can be more impactful than anything else is just being totally present and giving somebody the time and especially in this era of social media and everything and i'm all over social media but when you give somebody that moment 
that you're just present for them, that's more valuable than anyone. Well said. Thank you, Carmel, for telling your story and for giving us this time. Uh, very much appreciate it. I have to say too, when you when you dropped into you uh, being someone else and you dropped into Australian accent, oh, so good. One of the better ones I've heard from someone that's not their uh, native accent. So well, I've got an Australian native. accent, have I? Uh, when you when you were doing the uh, description of other people talking, it All was right. like, yeah, so good. No, 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 no Australian accent. From you. <laughs> Just when you were doing your um, acting skills. Yeah. Okay, that's funny. Um, <laughs> where can people find more about you, Carmel? Uh, just search for Carmel Murphy on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube even. I'm everywhere. And um, as always, things are evolving and changing. Right now, there's a bit of a change going on um, as well in business and in my messaging. But by all means, I'm always happy to have a chat, have a connection and um, you will find on any of my social media channels a link where you can book a time to have a quick chat with me too. Awesome. And we'll make sure we get all those links in there as well. Uh, Carmel, thank you so much. I appreciate you sharing so openly, uh, particularly some really big stuff there. And there were some great messages in there and for the, for the listeners. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I love when people ask me that I'll tell anybody if they want to know and if it supports them. But sometimes we don't sit and have these conversations often enough. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.